Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Super, Pyro, welcome back to 10 Century. Thanks for coming back for this, the third installation of uh, the EF-111 Spark special on, on 10 Century. You bet, it's great to be back. Yeah, good to be here, thank you. So the plan of action today then is to try and conclude the story of the uh, EF-111. Um, but before we go that far, I think we need to talk about the end of Operation Desert Storm, which was where we were talking um, when we concluded the last episode. So uh, I think... Uh, you know there are some obvious topics to cover the um the EF111 kill that uh, was was claimed i think against a, a Mirage F1 uh, uh maybe an overview from each of you as to um how the campaign how the conflict went from your point of view from the platform's point of view what was good what was bad uh, and then maybe we'll just pick up from there and see uh, what eventually happened to the F111 after Desert Storm and, and why it went away so who wants to start? Sure. <laughs> I'll start. So, yeah, so a little bit of a step back. So we went we went forward in time, uh, you know, to uh, about 20 days into the hostilities. Early on uh, back there, um, you know, in, in, in the first daytime, I think. Uh, so uh, Super and I were up in the air, you know, that first midnight, and then uh, that first daytime, we're still flying low altitude missions. The the Brits are still dropping um, Durandal onto runways, and uh, B-52s are still coming in at low altitude. Unbeknownst to me, I always thought they were high altitude. Uh, you know, a thing of particular note is our our EF-111 guys. We were really proficient at low altitude. There was a question somewhere, you know. Um, in the AMA, how much low altitude flying did we do? I, I always felt like the EF, we, I got to do more low level flying than I did in the, in the lizard because uh, all we had to do to get a, a successful flight was to go to our 
our uh, radar range, turn on the master rad for five minutes, and we're successful. So the rest of the time, we got to practice precision navigation. You know, we had this steam-driven INS, and uh, we really had to work hard to 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 be able to uh, reliably perform like five-second timing. You know, so we were always practicing our low altitude. Uh, timing, it's very stressful. There's a lot of unknowns. You're constantly navigating. You're watching out for your wingman. And so because of that low altitude proficiency, uh, we had an EF-111 crew that actually scraped off a mirage. And uh, and then it was just impossible for any of the rest of the theater to believe such a thing had happened. <laughs> but but it did. And then And then to top it off, you know, we mentioned that when we turned on our master radiate, and I guess the same thing happened with the EA-6B, we would actually jam our own IFF. So we would disappear. We would disappear from the big computer screen in the sky. AWACS couldn't see us anymore. And if AWACS couldn't see us, well, then we didn't exist. And so there became this, there became this big controversy as to whether or not an EF-111 could actually claim a kill. Well, hey, the airplane was gone and, uh, and our guys were there. And then... Uh, and then our our F-15 community, they didn't want to believe it because they couldn't see it on radar anywhere. So we didn't know where we were. We are the nearly the best low-level flyers in the country. And someone's trying to tell us we didn't know where we were. You know, that that was just impossible to believe. And so so that's where the the little bit of controversy surrounded that EF-111 kill. Um, and you know. And so that was kind of a, a little backtrack in time. And then, you know, forward in time, uh, um, you know, I think the neat part of our participation in, or our contribution to Desert Storm was that we were involved in every phase of that, of that hostility. We were there on the first night supporting F-117s, and we were there supporting B-52s, C-130s, dropping 20,000 pound daisy cutters. And, and then the last days we're orbiting over top of the, of the signing of the, um, I forgot what the signing activity was down in Kuwait when we ended the war. Uh, you know, we were up there flying around and, uh, and then one that I thought was neat was supporting the battleship. So early on in the hostilities, we had our squadron commander was, uh, did a big faint, to, uh, to help drag off those air-to-air fighters uh, to try to suck them in, uh, you know, kinematically kill any shots that they took, and then also set them up as targets. So that was a decoy mission, which I thought was fantastic, you know, that, that we got involved in not only our primary missions, close-in jam, standoff jam, but also acting as a decoy. I thought that was some pretty flexible thinking on the part of our EW planners. And then, uh, and then as the as the ground war is getting started, there's this uh, decoy mission. Uh, the Marines were setting things up so it looked like that there was going to be an amphibious landing, and in and we got to con- we got to participate in that too. Uh, you know, part of the amphibious landing uh, was to make use of the two battleships that were there. The battleships were probably mostly there to launch cruise missiles because they had a big magazine and they could shoot a lot of cruise missiles. But still having the battleships in the Gulf, you know, um, gave the opportunity to use them as a decoy 
to shell an island. And so uh, I got fragged uh, along with the wingman to support that overall decoy mission uh, by putting the EF-111s up there and, and jamming things. So, uh, so I was really excited about that one. I thought I was going to blaze in over top of the battleship and, and see the guns going off. And, and then someone reminded me that, that when the guns go off, big shells fly out of them too. <laughs> and, uh, and, and for those shells to reach any, any uh, distance, they have to go up, you know? So if you're going 10 miles, you're going up into the atmosphere five miles, you know, to get your max range. And so, uh, so we, fortunately, we realized early on that we needed to be offset from the battleships. But uh, so, I, so that was, you know, kind of a, an overview of, of what I remember, you know, our whole thing. We got to be involved at every level. And our EW planning cell up there in Riyadh kept us engaged all the way along. So we really, we squeezed every capability out of that EF-111 uh, that we had. Now, one of, the, uh, one of the things about the EF-111 is it was good at being noticed. Uh, it's not a stealthy platform, right? And when it uh, does its jamming mission electromagnetically, it's the brightest thing in the universe. And so if you if you want to draw attention to yourself or you want to draw the attention of the enemy away from uh, a stealth platform, for instance, or or just another part of the battlefield in general, uh, EF-111s were were used in that role uh, to great effect. The first part of the war was very much scripted, very much uh, important for getting people through mezzes. But after Puba's party, uh, it didn't take long for the paralysis in the whole IADS to just become endemic in, uh, throughout all of Iraq. And it wasn't long before um, we were doing uh, missions that weren't dedicated uh, so critical in time and location. Uh, we were doing essentially um, standoff jams uh, trying to deal with uh, the one or two or three um, early warning or GCI radars, acquisition radars that were brave enough to still radiate. And, and that rapidly fell off as, the, uh, as it became clear to the Iraqis that uh, they, were, they had bitten off way more than they could chew. That's this, this prompts lots of questions in my in my mind then so and, and uh, i'm remiss in not mentioning the ama thank you para for, for reminding me so there is we will do at the end the ama which is uh on the discord group there's a a bunch of people who've been very active asking questions for super and uh, para to answer we'll, we'll get to that later one of the questions that's in there though is about polarity and i did think about this and it's kind of a good question yeah because so there are two things I, I was told that by somebody I interviewed about, um, we, we talked about Eldorado Canyon, I think in interview one, maybe, and um, you, you guys said you didn't have any first-hand experience of it. One of the things that I was told about from, from one of the F-111 guys who flew that mission was that the Libyans had, I think it was either a Kotal or a Roland Sam, and they said he said that their self-projection jammer or their raw gear couldn't pick it up the f-111's raw gear couldn't pick that up because it had reverse polarity and one of my other interviews is was a guy called adam robinson who was a, a gr1 nav um tornado gr1 nav he talked about the same thing in iraq he said we didn't have he said 
they flew it, I think, directly over the top of a Roland. And they had to be that close for their raw gear to pick it up because it had reverse polarity. So we're kind of skipping a little bit into a little bit of a, a, a segue. But broadly, how did you guys handle pop-up threats, those dynamic moving um, sort of tracked vehicle type threats? Um, and what is the answer to that question on polarity then? Were there systems that you could not detect or jam because of the reverse polarity? Now, usually when you have a discussion about polarity, you're talking about the target tracker of that particular system. And and we relied on our own F-111 self-protection jammers, um, the 137 set on the EF-111 to protect us from those. As far as our mission, we, we would go after the acquisition radar. So uh, a Roland or a Cortal or those kinds of uh, systems were much more conventional in the acquisition piece than they were in the target tracking. Uh, Roland is a good example of uh, very much a frequency spread system, uh, very shortwave, high frequency target tracker on the Roland. Um, polarity, just as an electromagnetic principle, is, is interesting. Right. Most of the systems out there are horizontally polarized because airplane wings are horizontal things. Right. And so they pick up they pick up horizontal things very well. If you vertically polarize, you'll pick up things like a vertical tail surface or or things like that. And, and many of the systems will sort of split the difference between polarities and go circular polarization, which which takes a DB hit over, over the pure horizontal or vertical, but is sort of the jack of all trades, master of none solution to uh, a ground-based system. Uh, we didn't really uh, have a problem with polarity. Uh, some things were easier to pick up than others, um, but for the most part, we had figured it out. Uh, in our target study before the fact uh, we just happened we just had to realize that for for uh, a lower db power level we may be closer to the target when it's finally detected than we otherwise would be but uh roland roland acquisition was quite uh you know kind of standard for foreign acquisition radar, but the target trackers is where, is where you get into that kind of a discussion. Yeah, so when you when you mentioned reverse polarity, um, you could have circular polarization like on the target tracker. So think of something uh, they would call it spin scan or something like that. So you have you have a radar that's trying to make a funnel of energy and trying to keep you in the center of that funnel of energy. So that style of radar, you end up getting this circular polarization as a receiver. You want to, you want to characterize that for the air crew that you're trying to help defend. Uh, if someone chooses to turn the other way around, now your receiver is expecting left-hand polarity and it's, it's coming in right-hand. And so I, I saw a little ECM uh, receiver chart and it mentioned that the, the one case where you get 
really poor gain out of your receiving antenna is when you got it backwards. You know, so if your antenna is optimized for right-hand polarization and the signal coming in is left-hand circular polarization, you can have a pretty huge DB loss. And so that's where you would end up with that situation of not seeing the missile launch until you're right over top of the, of the transmitter. For us, you know, our 99 system, we're standoff. We're especially something like a, a Roland, we're gonna be way outside of its engagement zone. You know, we, we would stand off 25, 30 miles or something that so uh, yeah it turned out to be not a big factor for the 99 system because of the band that we're mostly operating in can i ask about the kill then so one of the things about this channel and my philosophy to it is that that it's to invite people on to share their stories not to um get into arguments with them or to uh, try and tell them they're wrong or anything like that but i did just from a philosophical point of view i mean i think one of the things i learned I've learned from talking to lots of people like you is that in the intervening years, the 31 years or so, lots of information has come to light, which sort of challenges some of the conventional wisdoms around what happened and who did what. I think Scott's, the Scott Spiker shoot down is probably a great example of that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was, you know, initially, I think there was some suggestion that he hadn't been shot down. And now we know the name of the, the MiG-25 pilot and how he did it. And we've got his narrative on, on, on exactly what happened to him and you know, Scott Spiker and his, his F-18. And I think at one point, the F-15 weapons school was teaching that it was a blue on blue, that he had been shot down by an F-14. So so there is, there's learning to be done and there's sort of some corrective um, sort of writings to be done from a historical point of view. Uh, you know, my personal experience um, as a writer for sort of 12, 15 years was working a lot with F-15 units. And one of the things that the F-15 units sort of hypothesize about is the possibility that that Mirage F-1 hitting the ground behind that EF-111 was actually Cheese Grater's kill, one of the one of the F-15 guys' kills hitting the ground. So I wondered, not, I'm not, you know, it isn't a challenge to you, but I do wonder, you know, what what's the information that you've got that says, no, this was definitely a Mirage being drug into the ground by a, a, an EF-111 sort of doing a... Um, you know, a combat descent onto auto TF or whatever, you know, is, is there some possibility that the alternative narrative could have some, some credence? Uh, I didn't get to talk to Brent and his, his uh, crewmate that much. I, I think the, the thing that most supports them is, is the direct result. You know, they, they knew exactly where they were. They knew exactly what time it was. They knew exactly what they were doing and, and they remembered it. And the re reason they remember that stuff so accurately is because we used to take our orbits and for every orbit, you would write your target time at, at each, at your centroid. You know, every time you passed your centroid, your goal was to be there plus or minus five seconds. And so as soon as they bugged out, it's very easy to figure out where you were at exactly what time. And uh, just we're very time conscious all the time. And so they knew where they were. And, and on the flip side, the other community has so much data. You know, they have, they have a recording. They, they probably have a, 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 you know, some sort of a digital recording of their, of their heads up display. So they have all this data and it's very exact and we're not there. So, you know, so you have these, these two, two forms of data. We don't have a recording of ours. All we have is what's written on the paper. 
they have an exact recording. You know, they have fingerprints. They have gunshot residue. You know, they know exactly what they got. And, and uh, so that's, you know, that's where the discussion starts. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, so I think the after action reporting as time goes on, it seems to me, apparently, the EF-111 story must have gained enough credibility to award, you know, award this crew for a job well done. Hmm. And, uh, and it, you know, it wasn't, from our perspective, it's not about who gets credit for the kill. It's just the fact that we, you know, that crew did a fantastic job. You know, they were at the peak of their training and they, they performed exceptionally. And, uh, you know, so that's, it's, it's almost like two orthogonal discussions. You know, one guy's talking about credit for a kill and they have all this forensic data and, and the other guy's just like, you know, don't take something away from me just because I don't have digital proof of it. We, uh, we did run the AWACS tapes afterward and the AWACS can see uh, skin paints. So even if, if, if they're not receiving the, the uh, IFF, they can still track items. Um, my information is all sort of one-sided. I, I was good friends with Brent Brandon, the EWO on that. Jim Dent was a pilot. And, uh, and I, I have their narrative. Uh, but the, the thing about being an EWO and an EF-111 is you have actually very good essay about what's going on in the electromagnetic spectrum. So we, we know that it was a Mirage F1 and we know what modes the radar was in at what times. We also have AWACS uh, drag call uh, to the EF-111 knowing that that Mirage F1 was closing on them. And then we have the visual, although this happened at night, we have the visual account of the right-hand turn and Brent looking out the back and seeing uh, the ground strike. So, uh, so EF-111 EWOs are, are in this position where they have no defense, but they have very good SA. So, so you get to die all tensed up. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so let's get back then to the broader topic at hand and in terms of your reflections on the performance of um, the aeroplane, the performance of the community, uh, your individual performances, and and what um, the outcome should really have been for the F-111 versus what it actually was in the years that followed. And so the, you know, my little look back, uh, so my time after flying, I went into the Pentagon and I got to see how how decisions are made, which is, you know, sometimes amazing, sometimes disturbing, other times disgusting. And, uh, you know, so the little bit of research I did over the past couple of weeks uh, uh, put me in the perspective that the EF-111 was a gap filler. Uh, you know, we, we had this pretty amazing, capable airplane as far as going fast and going a long distance and having a large payload. And, uh, and we had all these A models that were practically useless. And so from the Air Force's perspective, they avoided buying an EA-6B. They took some of these useless A model 111s and made them useful for, for a couple decades. 
And uh, but they it was always going to be too expensive to upgrade them. And uh, and so so the upgrade plans, as soon as they could justify it, it seemed to me that they pushed those off the table. I remember uh, Jay Santee was in the Pentagon and he was in the office to try to I, I think he was in the office to try to help manage what was going to go into that into that next generation jammer or, or whatever the phrase was at the time. Next generation jammer is a very specific thing in the present. And, uh, and Jay was just pulling his hair out because it was like nobody wanted to hear it. He, he was involved in the program. The program had funding, but at every turn, he, there was a wall like, oh, no, that probably won't work. We have a study that shows that won't work. And, uh, and I remember Jay talking about the one thing they were running into was the million pulses per second environment that, that the, a jamming aircraft was going to be exposed to. So, uh, um, so with all of that future knowledge, now I sort of understand, you know, what happened post desert storm. Uh, I was just flabbergasted. We did exceptionally, we destroyed that IADS and we worked so fantastic as a team in the EW planning cell. It just seemed unimaginable to me that suddenly the EF-111 is on the same off ramp as the rest of the 111s and F-4s. Um, so that was sort of my, my perspective on, on the, the short life of the EF-111 is, is now colored by the realities of what I saw going on in the Pentagon and how budget decisions are made. And, and they're looking for more money for the F-22. And so when the, when the EF-111 got extended by two years at the expense of the F-22 budget, that was, that was a blow to the heart of the F-22 guys. It, which means you got to punish the EF-111 even more when you finally get to send it to the boneyard. Yeah, it was, uh, <clears throat> it, it, it was an interesting time, right? The Soviet Union had collapsed. The, the wall came down. Desert Storm happened. We were big victors. Uh, and, and you also ought to keep in mind the very same Soviet systems that filled up the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam Obviously, those guys were good pilots, too. Uh, and then you compare that with the Desert Storm experience, and you got to ask yourself, so what was the difference? Historically low casualty rates. What was the difference? Uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm thinking that we had a large part to play in that. And I think the, the post-Desert Storm analytics will bear that out. Uh, whether you were awesome or not is not the measure of performance, though, in a, in a budget environment where uh, peace is breaking out all over the world and you have a, a new uh, president that's been elected and elected on a let's, let's have a peace dividend kind of a platform. And so it... <laughs> It's very hard. It's hard for the F-111F guys also, who were the all-stars of the war, dropped 60% of the precision-guided munitions. Uh, they were featured on the news every night, practically, with General Schwarzkopf pointing to their video, uh, PaveTac video of them taking down a bridge here, a hardened aircraft shelter there, or shutting down the, the oil flow that was fouling the Arabian Gulf, that 
that F-111 crew uh, with a brand new uh, weapon that only took two weeks to develop out of Eglin Air Force Base took that pumping station out and they won a big environmental award. It didn't seem to matter, right? The, F- the F-111s were, were really quite awesome in that particular war, but, but they were expensive to fly per flying hour, hard to keep uh, airborne and in good repair. And there were a bunch of new systems coming online that uh, were very expensive. So something had to give in that environment, and it turned out to be uh, the F-111s, um, especially the older models of the F-111. And then eventually, once all the rest of the F-111s are retired, uh, they wanted to keep the EF-111, but now logistically, the parts are gone and you can't really sustain uh, an, a weapon system with just 42 airplanes and, and be able to justify that. So uh, that the handwriting was sort of on the on the wall for the whole F-111 fleet and the EF-111s went down with uh, that whole ship. When I was uh, first getting into the Pentagon, a couple of my other EF-111 buddies were in there, Hotchkins or Hotchkiss, with Paul Guy, Russ, yeah. Yeah. Called me dumb as a bag of hammers. I guess I might never forget (laughs) that. But... uh, the uh, Russ was in this operations study office and and they were trying to get ready for congressional testimony because they're trying to justify the F-15E or something like that. And uh, and and one of the topics, you know, the day that I was down there, they're pulling their hair out like the Congress is making us try to use this metric and it's just kicking our ass. Uh, the metric was bomb ton miles. And, and they could not get the F-111F off the table because it was superior to every other fighter for bomb ton miles, and uh, which they, it could carry more bombs farther, faster with the same fuel. And, uh, and they're like, bomb ton miles don't matter. You know, it, it's got to be some other metric. And so it was an interesting conversation just to see, you know, they're you know, the energy going into getting rid of the F-111F model so that they could justify the next generation, which is a much less expensive airplane to maintain, much more multi-role, has a much better uh, weapons bus. Uh, you know, so all the all the fighter crews, you know, knew the reason to, to move on to the next aircraft. But uh, but Congress was was coming up with these other metrics, you know, that was making it difficult. And the, and the other thing to think about is what, what happened in the digital world at that time? What, what is happening to computer power uh, as, as we go? And the EF-111 was uh, conceived in the Pong computer uh, era, right? And after Desert Storm, there was a push to upgrade that, uh, that system to a to take advantage of the leaps that had happened in computer power. So bringing sort of the EF-111 from Pong to sort of Mario Kart kind of a level in the mid-90s uh, was, was possible. And that was also the advent of digital RF memory, which is the magic 
super sauce that happens in electromagnetic warfare these days. We didn't have it back then. That it was an analog system, really, uh, for jamming. But but once you get DERFM, digital RF memory, you can do all kinds of diabolical things to people with jammers, <laughs> and uh, and and getting some of that onto a jamming platform was was very um, attractive. I was I was very excited to do it. Uh, like I said, I I signed up for test pilot school and was selected. I think probably on the basis of knowing that that they would need a developmental tester for this new upgraded computer uh, EF one eleven jamming system. Uh, but in mid ninety five, as I was a student, they pulled the rug out from underneath the program. And and I ended up going to be ones instead. That's a that's an interesting topic, and I know uh, super. We we had to be careful about. Well, I had to be careful about not putting you on the spot about certain things. You as you, we can see, you're dressed to go to work. You're still working um, at the test pilot school there. But um, Derfum jammers of something that I've been um, sort of I've mentioned on my channel before talking to other guests and um, if anybody's not familiar with that in terms of the effects you, you mentioned diabolical effects I you know I was told by an F-15 guy that he flew against a Durfin jammer and it shut his radar down for him so um, can you within the unclassified world describe to somebody what digital radio frequency memory is and why um, it represents that sort of quantum leaping in capability yeah well I'll, I'll give you the the wikipedia version of this right this is this is the open source version so um what what makes digital rf memory uh cool is that you can store the the signal that's uh, coming from the victim radar into a digital memory and you can replicate that coherently, so in phase with the original system. So there's really no way for the transmitting system to tell the difference between an echo and uh, a signal that's been generated to look just like an echo. And since it's digital, that's where you can get diabolical. Uh, all that happens at very, very high machine speeds, uh, much faster than an EWO could make uh, a decision. Uh, pulse to pulse uh, changes, and you can, you can walk off just about any parameter digitally and be very deceptive. So it, it, it was a great, um, a great leap forward in the sort of spy versus spy electromagnetic warfare world. Uh, where the jammers uh, have the upper hand for for a number of years uh, before the digital revolution takes over the ground systems too, uh, coupled with uh, extreme ranges, and and now there's a parity between the the two sides again. Uh, but that and that's about as far as I think I'd be willing to go. Mine would probably be a, uh, you know, again, a Wikipedia engineering type idea. So 
the last thing Dave mentioned there is is like the ground system. So we buy ground systems to try to last a long time. And, uh, and as soon as you build something, you have a piece of hardware that you're limited to. Uh, uh, 50, 60, or 20, 30 years ago, uh, your, your amplifiers were very limited on what they could do. Now you have these broad range amplifiers that, that can receive or transmit across a larger band range, but your hardware is still limited. It's sort of like plumbing. You know, if, if you only have an opening this big, only a certain group of, of uh, electromagnetic magnetic waves can fit through that. Uh, so we have these ground systems that have physical limits uh, and your Durfum jammer can run rings around them because because real, no matter what you do electronically to that thing, the Durfum Jammer is ready to slap a, you know, take that recording back home, come up with a new program tomorrow. Tomorrow we can beat you. Meanwhile, the the ground system is not able to be that that flexible. So, uh, so I think that was kind of the the big surprise with the Durfum is like, oh my gosh, our electronically, uh, you know, their their change cycle is so much more rapid uh, than ours. So you would have then, the plan had been, had they not called the EF-111, would be to get these Durfum jammers into the EF-111. Is that, that, is that super what you, were going to, what you were going to work on then after successfully completing the, the, the test pilot school? Well, that's, that's my expectation. I, I was never read into the program. Uh, I didn't get far enough to know what was uh, in the plan. I that's just me looking back and going, okay, the computers are more powerful. I can do a lot more with my ALQ99E. And, and now I have uh, the capability of doing digital RF memory. And, and that opens up a whole new world of uh, countermeasures that I could apply. Uh, I expected that was what was in SIP, the system improvement program. But I, like I said, I never got a chance to see it. So maybe one of your other guests would be able to fill in some of those blanks. Yeah, my, my expectation would be that we would continue to try to piggyback on whatever the Navy was doing. So the Navy's developing these power amplifiers. They, they have their pod jammers, but inside those pod jammers, they have components that we can use. There was something called a universal exciter. Uh, you know, be, before you can, before you can put out jamming energy, you have to have a jamming signal. That jamming signal has to come from somewhere. And I think they called it an exciter, sort of like a, a pre-amplifier and a power amplifier. And so I know there was, you know, the, the Navy had these plans for all these different components and some of that got delayed as well. And they're, they're still designing the next generation jammer and they've been doing that for 10 years. So, uh, you know, now that they have the, the, G model platform almost fully deployed. Now they can move on to the next part of the program and, and create the next set of jamming pods uh, with, you know, with these very flexible uh, jamming program generators and then really broadband power amplifiers that can push that jamming program out into the atmosphere. So my guess is that you know combination of things the navy was probably slow to develop that that item that was going to go into the jamming bay 
of the EF-111. And, and so it, uh, you'd be sustaining, sustaining an airplane for five years, not knowing when the Navy is actually going to deliver mm. that, uh, that piece of hardware. Before we talk about the end, the end of the F-111, as in when it happened and, you, and sort of what you guys did next, or I think, um, Para, you already said you went to the Pentagon, but, but just step back right then to what we talked about a little bit in the last session, which was the simulations for what was going to happen on the opening night and the, the following week or so in, in Desert Storm, 30% loss rate. Um, and I just re- I'm reading someone's um, A10 autobiography at the moment, and he says the same thing, you know, you know, some bigwig came around and said you need to expect 30 percent losses on the on the first day or two um and picking up then super on you know your your reference or your question about what was different between then and you know 20 years previously in southeast asia uh, i mean can you infer from the disparity between what happened and the simulation that there was a lack of ability to simulate EW, there was a lack of understanding around EW, if the EW was the differentiating factor or, or, or an important differentiating factor, let's say it's not the only one, but let's say an important one, can you infer from that that the planning um, process just wasn't able to fully take into account the capabilities of, of your platform and, and others? Well, there's a saying in the developmental test world that is applicable all models are wrong and some are useful. So, uh, so if you're running a simulation, you're feeding that simulation, a model, uh, you try to make the model as uh, high fidelity with reality as you possibly can. But remember this is, you know, 20 less than 20 years following the end of the Vietnam conflict for America. And Vietnam models are populating most of those uh, simulations. The loss ratios, yeah. Right. So so I am not surprised that the simulations of the time, which, and there was just really no way for them to include uh, the latest up to the minute uh, electromagnetic warfare advances. And remember, we as EF-111s in, in red flags and green flags weren't even allowed to fully exercise our system for a variety of other reasons. So, so the data feeding those models was probably flawed, thankfully flawed. And, uh, and the combination of the new triad in electromagnetic warfare that was there for Desert Storm, the compass call, the uh, F4G with new harm missiles, and, and the EF-111, I think, was the, the big difference there. And it wasn't modeled, uh, apparently, wasn't modeled as effectively as it should have been uh, or could have been. Uh, but thankfully, as I said, we missed that estimate, but on the good side of the estimate. So very few casualties overall compared to the Vietnam experience against the very same threats. I'm trying to remember, uh, the language, you know, uh, Dave used the term for the F-15s, uh, you know, they had this term like, we're going to have a wall of eagles and we're going to go in and rage around. You know, th- there's these phrases. 
And so a phrase that's stuck in my head is roll back the IADs. And I don't know if we had that term roll back the IADs until after Desert Storm. Uh, you know, that might have been something that I heard in all the modeling activity after Desert Storm. So it was, it was new. The, I think our plan in Europe was gorilla packages. We're going to launch the gorilla. We're going to push it through the gap. Uh, what we did in Desert Storm to, to not worry so much about all of the deep strike targets first, we really concentrated on that electronic thing, and uh, and and we developed the term "deed," you know, uh, destruction of enemy air defenses. So there were a couple of new terms that came, I think, came out of Desert Storm, which you know, destruction of enemy air defenses, not just suppress them, and roll back the IADs. Uh, so, so I think uh, we we actually, in the iterative process, we we created some out of the box thinking that we could we had so many bombs they kept they kept increasing the assets the resources that we had we continued to flow more and more airplanes into theater uh, and and our airbase taif every piece of flat ground that you didn't need to taxi an airplane on seemed to have 500 pound bombs sitting on it we you know we had so many bombs for those f111 f models to drop that uh, you know every target was allocated a second and a third time so uh so so i think that was was part of it is we had we got to continue to grow uh you know our assets in theater uh so that so that we really could just you know it was sort of like a ground campaign conducted from the air you know we we struck all the deep targets but we really systematically pushed back their their air defense that does raise an interesting question then doesn't it about you've you've sort of fighting in the way that you fought the last war so having i can't remember if we were recording when we were talking about this sorry but but you know there is a question in the ama about more advanced threats and and super you were saying well at that point you know the, the russians weren't selling them to satellite states or, or foreign nations but um when so when you look at what happened with the F one eleven going away, and the fact that the F one eleven F one eleven A was old, and you know the Air Force was trying to get rid of it, and and the F one eleven was part of that process, then you look at the A six um, as you know this sort of one remaining sort of tactical jamming platform, let's call it, and then you think about okay, so the Cold War is dying, um, you know it's nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two. But but was there still an expectation, going back to what Paro just said, that you would be going through, the, say, the folder gap, you'd be creating a space, wedging your way through it with this guerrilla package? And therefore, did you still need something that had a low-fly, auto-TF, um, you know, supersonic capability to execute the close-in jamming or or even the sort of, you know, the, the penetration jamming mission? Yeah, I, I would say the answer to that is yes. And that is the reason why the uh, America bought the EA-18G Growler. Uh, they needed a faster platform. The A6 platform was going the way of the F-111. It was just an old platform, getting harder and harder to logistically sustain. The F-18 was, uh, was the common platform. Um, 
complete item. It has a lot of parts commonality with uh, the bomb dropping versions of the F-18. Um, it, it just makes sense. And I think I alluded to it earlier that the Air Force uh, really never fully believed in electromagnetic warfare the way that the Navy did. Uh, the, the Air Force, in my mind, sort of went all in on stealth. But uh, anybody who's savvy in electromagnetic warfare knows that stealth has to be paired with, um, with jamming in order to be fully effective. And so uh, the Air Force is coming around to that, but uh, that those new programs are, are taking a sort of a different tack than we took back in the Reagan buildup years. Uh, and, and we're doing those things with, um, with um, decoys, flying decoys and, and things like that instead of uh, individual platforms. Farah, did you have any, um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, so I got to sit in on at a couple different phases. I participated in in electronic warfare studies, and I I can't remember the exact dates with each one. At uh, I think when I was involved in the development of our force packaging called Air Expeditionary Forces, where we would rotate these forces through. Uh, somewhere in that group, I got involved with the electronic warfare folks out of desire more than out of need. And uh, at that time, they were programming money into a standoff jamming program because they had these B-52 airframes that Congress wouldn't let them get rid of. Uh, they kept putting money into these airplanes that the Air Force really wanted to retire. And so at, at that time, they were like, well, if they're going to make us hang on to the B-52s, let's just put some giant ass uh, jamming pods out on the wings. And, and those guys have some loiter time. And, uh, and it would accomplish, you know, some of what uh, Super was talking about, you know, raising the noise floor uh, and, and just loitering around. And so they would program this money in and then kind of let it expire. If, you know, if nothing really happened where they had to have it, then they would just roll that money into another study and study it for another couple of years. And, uh, and I, I never saw any high fidelity studies until my last time, uh, you know, work, working with the, the civilian side, OSD, the Secretary of Defense side. Then I, I saw some highly classified studies where they really took the actual signature of the aircraft and the actual transmission parameters of the enemy radar and they had enough computer power at that time where they could really put a hundred of these you know into the battle space and a hundred defenders into the battle space and and they could they could start to see you know what is the real effect and you know we we had some high power computers so a, a true simulation and like in, in what we understand of it today, those simulations back in 1999 comparatively were more like board games. You know, at, at the beginning of the first hour on day one, 
you know, this is what it looks like. And then everyone takes their losses. And then at the beginning of the second hour, here's what it looks like. You know, modern day simulations really can, you know, uh, do it, you know, by the particular radar beam per second. But uh, so, yeah, the, the Air Force kept putting money into studies and they always had a plan on the table as to what they would do if something made them buy the next jammer. But but they just kept sliding that along, uh, you know, as long as the need never actually materialized, they would just delay that, you know, into the next budget cycle. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? The idea that, and I thought philosophically, you you didn't allow the other guy to determine your game plan. I thought philosophically you went out and played your best game and, you know, you can employ tactics to, you know, mitigate or whatever. But it's interesting that that sort of whole notion of kicking the can down the road then and, and waiting until you have to before you do something. Is that also um, allied with what I think you've both mentioned now about, you know, the Navy being the sort of keepers of knowledge around EW, is that is that then symptomatic of the Air Force just saying, we don't really have the time to do this EW stuff, so we'll just deal with it when we need to? Or is that generally an Air Force philosophy that you, you know, you don't want to spend money or time or resources on something that you don't need at the moment? Um, well, my it, impression... Go ahead, yeah, Mine is the Air Force is actually playing a long game, but but they're playing it in, in their own way. And and uh, like the, F, you know, alluding to the F-117, that plane was able to stay sort of undercover for almost a decade. And and the nature of electronic warfare, it really de- does need to be secret. And so the, the more things you can keep secret, the, the longer it lasts, because as soon as you... As soon as you produce a physical object, there's all these properties of physics that allow you to figure out what it's capable of. And so uh, so on the good side, I would say the Air Force is playing a long game by, by you know, constantly having something they're talking about in public, but in private, uh, you know, there are things out there. You know, they're making great use of decoys and... Uh, and our low probability of intercept radars, you know, there's been a huge investment in B-2 radar. B-2 is a stealthy airplane. Somehow it needs to have precision ground mapping that no one can hear. And so uh, there've been huge investments in in low probability of intercept communications, things like that. And the Air Force, I I shouldn't disparage the Air Force, it's my own service. they are keeping um, keeping their their foot in the electromagnetic warfare world. There is a an Air Force squadron of EA eighteen G Growlers. Uh, it's hosted out of Whidbey Island up in Washington, and they fly. Five. What's that? Is a squadron five in Navy parlance? Uh. Five what? Five growlers, five airplanes. Oh, five airplanes. I'm not sure how big the complement of uh, of growlers that the Air Force Squadron has, or or whether it's just a sharing arrangement. They probably just share it with the Navy squadrons there. Uh, but I know that that squadron is manned exclusively by Air Force um, 
pilot 10 EWOs and, and it's actually attached to the 366 uh, fighter wing out of Mountain Home, Idaho. So it's a geographically separated squadron to the 366 now. So they do, they do keep their hand in that game and, and it produces uh, people who are savvy in that, that aspect of electromagnetic warfare, but then go on to the staff and are able to advise uh, senior leaders about the future, uh, what we should do in the future for electromagnetic warfare in general. But it's just one squadron. So, so, so just again, just being cautious not to put anybody in, a, in an uncomfortable position, but uh, you know, sticking to sort of open world or sort of open source um, type information. One of the things that you hear about, of course, is fifth generation um, having you know some electronic attack capabilities. Other platforms, four point five, maybe getting electronic attack capabilities. You know, Acer radar equipped F fifteens, F fifteen EX, and so on and so forth. Is is there an element then of and and the digitalization and the automation of of those systems and those capabilities? Is there an element where where you might get to a point where you don't have to have a dedicated um, tactical jamming platform coming along with you because you can get your aeroplane to do those things as well. Is that something that uh, is is a, is a scenario that could ever be contemplated? Would it ever happen? Um, I I'm not going to comment on those kinds of things. Uh, when I retired from the Air Force, Will Smith flashed the little thing in my face. So <laughs> I've completely forgotten all of that. I'm sure. Uh, it makes sense what you're saying, uh, but physics still applies. If you want to radiate on a certain wavelength and frequency, you can't just do it with any old transmitter. They still have to be sized to the wavelength uh, that is required to do the job. And, and so if I'm just applying my basic, basic physics knowledge to that question, I'd say, yeah, there's, there's a lot of capability uh, as long as you can actually put out energy at that frequency. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have something that can do that. I, I've forgotten. What, what did each of you do I think actually you, you both already said what you did, but a, a more full answer than as to as to what happened to you next. And uh, also, I, I wondered. This is a uh, you know I'm trying not to to be negative, but uh, super. There was an email where you said you bumped into somebody in the Pentagon. There's some history behind the squadron. I, it's a bit sad to me to to read that, but I wondered if maybe you would you would share that too. Sure. I. I uh... I mean, I, I loved my squadron, the 390th Electronic Combat Squadron. That was the Mountain Home Squadron. And the 42nd ECS was the squadron at Upper Hayford. We, during Desert Storm, actually folded in uh, elements of the 42nd and the 390th together down in Taif. And, but I'll, and, and this is something that I need to correct for this podcast. There was a big effort with EF-111s for the remainder of the 42nd out of Incirlik, Turkey, um, flying against the northern part of Iraq. 
during that conflict. And, and we shouldn't be uh, talking as if Taif was the only place that EF-111s flew from the, uh, the EF-111s out of Inserlik did uh, wonderful work up there. I know of at least one crew that won the Silver Star uh, for their uh, valor in battle out of Inserlik. So, so that story deserves to be told better than I can tell it because I wasn't there. The, uh, we talked a little bit about after Desert Storm, uh, after a big victory, you kind of let down. The Soviet Union had collapsed. Um, the peace dividend was being um, gleaned out of the defense budget. And we had a new chief of staff of the Air Force uh, midway through Desert Storm, General McPeak, who had very um, sweeping reform ideas in mind. One of those was a composite wing concept where every wing would have a, a package of stuff. So uh, it would have B1s, it would have tankers, it would have F-16s, it would have F-15Cs and F-15Es. And, uh, and you would deploy in his concept as a wing, the whole base would just empty out and that would be the force package it would go. And the advantage would be you had trained with uh, those people and you knew how they thought and how they acted. And, uh, and it was sort of like the Air Force base was like the carrier strike group. So uh, Mountain Home Air Force Base became the target for General McPeak's beta test of that idea. The 390th Electronic Combat Squadron actually became um, the 390th uh, Fighter Squadron with F-15Cs in it. Now, now think back to the sort of headbutting that had gone on uh, about who gets credit for the first kill of the war, an EF-111 or an F-15C, uh, and the sort of hijinks that went on, the third grade playground uh, bullying and, uh, and uh, shaming that was going on at Red Flags and other places. There was, there was not uh, that F-15C squadron, apparently, did not want to be associated with, uh, with the EF-111 legacy. And, uh, and the story that you're referring to, I was actually a Capitol Hill fellow at the time, it was about, uh, it was 1999, so nine years after Desert Storm, I, I meet with a guy, he's, uh, he's works in the House Liaison Office, and we got to talking like people do, and I found out that we had both been at Mountain Home. We had actually both been in the 390th, the Wild Boars, uh, but he was from the F-15C time, and I was from the EF-111 time, and I got to talking about, you know, Desert Storm and, and things like that. And I had actually painted a sign, the sign that marked our hardened aircraft shelter for everybody so that they would know where the EF-111 squadron was. And he says, ah, oh, I have that sign. It's in my garage. 
because they had taken all the memorabilia, memorabilia uh, from Desert Storm, the EF-111 part of the 390th, taken all that out of their squadron bar, their heritage room, as we're supposed yeah, to. Yeah, because it, it would, have had, would have had lightning bolts all over it. So that would oh, be very yeah. disgusting. You had to de-lightning bolt that patch. <laughs> And uh, he said, and he kind of got quiet and he sort of looked down and said, you know, I really ought to send that back to the 390th. Uh, but my wife and I actually went up to Whidbey Island on a trip just uh, a year or so ago. And I was going to show her all the memorabilia from, from Desert Storm. And there isn't, a, there isn't a single thing. It's all gone. And, and I can only conclude that it, it was, you know, the F-15Cs sort of acting like the, the insecure pharaoh, right, who ordered a chisel be taken to all the cartouches of his uh, predecessors on all the obelisks to wipe them out. Uh, I think it's just kind of sad for the historians in the, in the world that that we would be erased from history that way. Well, let's, let's see if we can get them to get that stuff back. Yeah. Well, I, I hope it's not just in a landfill in Northern Virginia somewhere, but it'd be great to see if we could recover that somehow. Well, if anybody is uh, listening to this and they know anybody on the squadron, get in touch. Let's see. Uh, I presumably super, you remember the name of the guy. Uh, you don't have to mention I, it on the podcast, but we, if we, uh, we know who it is, then. Well, I, I think it could be traced. Yeah. So anyway, for you then, um, Super, you went on and flew the B1. Yeah, I ret- uh, graduated from test pilot school, and they were looking to do the conventional mission upgrade program for the B1 at the time. Part of that was putting uh, towed decoy jammers on the B-1. And uh, and so I became the electronic warfare officer, ah, dang it, electromagnetic warfare <laughs> officer uh, for that program and for putting GPS-guided munitions and GPS on the B-1. That was that was my program. And, and I just pretty much stayed a developmental tester the whole time after that, except for a stint at U.S. Forces Japan, where I actually got to work with one of your earlier guests, uh, Clouseau Tolini, uh, when he was the Operation Support Squadron Commander at Kadena in Okinawa. Uh, and we were doing a uh, transfer of the air traffic control from U.S. control to the Japanese government. And we were part of the negotiating team for that. So I, I got to meet... Uh, Clouseau and and get and we became pretty good uh, friends and I got a little bit more uh, balanced view of what Desert Storm was like from the F-15C point of view as well. I should say he's watched the episode, so he he's uh, he, he asked me to drop you a line get, to put you in touch with him. So I'm, I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. I really like Clouseau and jo- enjoyed my time working in Japan with him. And, and, and Pyro, I don't, I, I don't mean to sound rude, but 
that um, for for a pilot, you know a lot about uh, all this this uh, CW stuff. I mean, one of the things that I I, I know when I talk to the old wild, wild weasel guys, um, the guys in the front always say, "Well, I don't know anything about really what's going on in the back," um, but you do. So, so what? Where did, how did you end up becoming such a fountain of knowledge then on these things? Or were you always that? Um, way? Oh. <laughs> uh, it was baked in. Uh, now I, I uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy, had an electrical engineering degree coming out of the coming out of there. And as I uh, alluded to um, in the bomb dropping version, I was the weapons officer. And even as a weapons officer, logging all the bomb scores, I never could be top gun. And so. So I, I knew that I just wasn't going to make it as a bomb dropper because I was always kind of a 75% guy. And so so I, I needed to go back to the cranium, you know, and, and uh, tap back into that. So so I, you know, given the opportunity, I gravita- gravitated over to the EF-111. And uh, I, I never knew that much about the jamming aspect of it. I, I could not remember all the details of you know, which radars associated with which SAM system. But, uh, but I really enjoyed being around it. And so then anytime I had a chance to be associated with electronic warfare later on, I, you know, I would, you know, kind of push my way in and like, EF-111 guy here, let me through, you know, I, I can help out with whatever simulation you're involved in. And uh, so I, so I just stayed interested in the, in the overall idea. And then uh, I went on for some follow on education and it was the first time I actually understood all the mathematics that went along with energy propagation. I went for a laser and electro-optic degree. And all we did, like every week, almost every day, was do something with Maxwell's equation and propagation through the atmosphere. And, and, uh, and, and so it was sort of like uh, today's knowledge, I finally understood the past. You know, I finally understood polarization. I finally understood uh, transmission between uh, different indexes of refraction. So, uh, so uh, you know, so I got to finally put a mathematical background back into uh, my, my bachelor's degree. So I understood that stuff a little better. And then I had some pretty broad experience afterwards. I, uh, I got to work as a technical intelligence officer. And so I finally got to meet some of those people that actually listened to those beeps and squeaks as they got recorded and, and transmitted back to Fort Meade. And then, uh, and then when it came, when that job just became a constant justification for the F-22, I went and under McPeaks Air Force. And then I, uh, I went and found something else to do. I became an air liaison officer with the Army Rangers. So uh, the last thing that I flew in the military was a parachute. And I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. It was, that was pretty fun, except, except for the one full-up exercise I got involved in. Uh, we were doing an airfield takedown, and uh, everything's going great. Stand up, hook up. I'm out the door, and it's dark. I'm like, wow, it's really black out here. And, uh, and, and then I look around and, and I realize it's a real airfield. I thought it was just a pretend practice airfield. And I'm like, this is a real airfield with, with real airfield antennas and, and pointy things down there on the <laughs> ground. And so, uh, so I got my feet and knees together and, and did a nice PLF. And, uh, but uh, yeah, so the last thing I flew was that. But 
working with the Army Rangers was was a very interesting group because like the EF-111, they got to work with a large variety of, of people. So I got a real nice exposure to ground warfare. Now, and, uh, and we were associated with the armor unit. I never never ran any exercises with the armor. Uh, mine was always the light infantry and the special operations. Uh, so that was kind of my, my follow-on uh, in-uniform activity. And then I became a reservist. So I worked on the reserve staff and learned a whole bunch of stuff about how the Air Force Reserve and the Air National Guard works. Uh, there was a, a question in, in uh, part of your discourse that was talking about, you know, how come the, the Guard and Reserve F-16s have the same capability? And, uh, and I learned how that worked, you know, budgetary, you know, how they finagled that and, uh, manip- and Congress, they work in conjunction with Congress to keep their airplanes up to date. So, uh, so I ended up with this real, real broad exposure to several, several different parts of the, of the Air Force. And then I worked on the Joint Staff. And I had the luxury of working in the requirements area where we were looking at all the future requirements. So I got to sit in on discussions on the F-35 and how they had a 95% probability of interference between the small diameter bomb and the weapons bay door drive motor. And all these things were in software. These didn't even really exist yet. And suddenly they had a $500 million problem because somebody had to change. The bomb had to get shorter or the bomb bay had to get bigger. And who's going to bear the cost? So uh, so it was uh, an interesting, I never thought that the staff would be interesting, but uh, with the variety of things you could get involved in, you end up getting all this knowledge as, as to how these long-term decisions are made sometimes on very detailed problems. I'm not surprised in the least to find out that uh, you enjoyed your uh, ALO tour. Uh, it, it, it reminds me, he was always looking for adventure. And one of the adventures he signed me up for because I was his crewmate was a combat search and rescue exercise before Desert Storm. <coughs> He signed me up for that, and I got to get rescued for two nights uh, by Army Special Forces in helicopters. Uh, the closest thing I ever came to uh, being abducted by aliens <laughs> was like they'd land, and there'd be this big disc of of golden, you know, sand sparking off the leading edge. It looked like a flying saucer, and then a bunch of black shapes would come tunneling out the back of it with a single green eye in the middle of their forehead <laughs> and, uh, and whisk you off into their spaceship to uh, start IVs on you with uh, infrared glow sticks. Uh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> I was, when I, so we were doing this simultaneously, but at two different locations as I was getting <laughs> rescued the first time strapped on the tailgate of a Chinook. And I, I feel like I'm hanging out in space. They, they strapped me onto a gurney. And <coughs> I guess the gurney was connected to the tailgate. And all I could see was space because I was hanging out there in the back. The, the guy with the IV needle, uh, he at least had a, had a belt on. And I'm looking, where's my safety belt? You know, you got one. Where's mine? And so, 
as I'm experiencing this, uh, you know, he finally, you know, does the IV needle and, and says, hey, you know, you got good, you got good hydration. Don't worry about it. You know, you'll be okay. Then my brain finally calms down and I start to think of someone other than myself. And I'm like, oh, Dave's probably having the same thing happen to him right now. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was my introduction to the Army. And, and then I got to spend two years with the special ops guys. They were an interesting group of folks. Lots of, lots of budget uh, for ammunition, and they knew how to use it. So the the Siri uh, question was one I didn't ask you. How did you intend? What was your what was your plan uh, if you were to use the capsule? You know, landing in the flat desert in this big um, sort of uh, gray color capsule. What, what were you going to do? You were just going to run away from it and try and put distance between yourself and it. Were you? I mean, what? It's because it's I, a giant I, beacon. I had my my plan. Uh, I, I think I told you earlier that when I found out I w- my leave was canceled and I had to return to base, I was at my high school reunion. So I, uh, I went down the next morning uh, before I drove back up to Mountain Home and went to the bookstore of uh, my university and checked out the Arabic 101 book. And I took the Arabic 101 book in my uh, deployment kit and I learned all these Arabic phrases like Urid Maya Min Fadlak, which is give me, please give me water. I figured I might need that one. And uh, I, I also thought that I might be able to barter for water with, uh, with my useless Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver, which would, would only piss people off if I tried to use it. <laughs> so uh, I was pretty much hoping that I really wasn't going to get shot down. Mine, mine was uh, just, you know, take advantage of this standoff jam and hopefully we can get a vector to the south uh, before we actually have to bail out. Uh, you know, the 111 was supposed to be kind of durable, uh, but there were a couple of things working against that that always, you know, concerned me. One was we had a fuel tank between our engines. So if a turbine blade ever comes off your engine, there's a high probability it's going to go into the fuel tank and explode it with the, uh, you know, hydraulic pressure. Uh, and the other that always uh, um, worried me is uh, the jammers had to be capable of working at supersonic airspeeds. And so they had this great idea that you would take the high temperature coolant and cool it down with fuel on the way to the engines. One question I was asked separately from the AMA to put to you gentlemen was around concerns with the radiated um, sort of um, energy that was coming out of the aeroplane and the fact that nowadays there are some studies going on to understand whether or not, you know, high rates of or, or apparently high rates of cancer amongst, you know, fighter air crew uh, through the, the, the 80s and 90s are related to having a radar in the nose of the aeroplane. Did you ever have any concerns about the transmission of that amount of energy sort of in, in such close proximity to you? Was there shielding in the aeroplane? Um, Super, you said in your very uh, comically in your uh, emails that there was no St. Elmo's fire, the aeroplane didn't glow or anything like that. But but is there a question about your safety in that environment? Uh, for me, I, I knew enough about electromagnetic energy to know that at those low frequencies, uh, 
I was as concerned about that as I am concerned about sitting next to this 75 watt light bulb. Uh, it's just a different frequency and actually a longer wavelength. So even probably less harmful than, than um, a visible light. It's when you get to the high frequencies into X-rays and gamma rays that it starts to be a problem with dissociating things in cells and breaking atoms, nucleuses apart and things like that, that would uh, foul up your DNA sequencing. Uh, so I, I was never concerned about it, but I was always uh, amused by the lack of savvy uh, in in people. They would ask questions and, and you know, the three-headed daughter question and the did you get superpowers question and the, and all that. And so I'd, I'd play that like a fiddle. Are you good? Kind of so, uh, uh, yeah, again, with the, you know, having the electrical engineering background, I wasn't, uh, wasn't so worried about the radiation because I knew it wasn't the same as a microwave. You know, the, the, the policemen, they, they had a problem with their early speed guns because they were actually at frequencies where you could heat up your bag lunch. So those guys, you know, did have the potential for cooking their heads if uh, if they sat next to that police radar. So yeah, I wasn't so worried about our our um, yeah energy. I made the mistake when I retired of uh, checking the box on were you exposed to radiation during your job. Oh, and yeah. uh, so I, I checked that box that delayed that delayed my VA benefits by a year. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there's no order to this, by the way, and there's a pretty good chance it's going to be there are going to be questions that uh, um, will be things that you may have already discussed and answered. And um, so, if that's the case, we'll just try and skip over them. But I'll ask them so you know we know at least what they are. So Sidlow asks, um, how much low-level flying did you do, and was there a TF radar stroke autopilot like in the bomber variants? I, I love the TF. I insisted that they engage the TF, especially when we were flying into the sun, uh, because I had a great deal of trust in that system. I thought it was uh, pretty good, as long, as long as you weren't letting down over low reflectivity, which we've already discussed. The, uh, yeah, the TF had this real calming sound to it. When it uh, was climbing, it would go beep, 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 beep. And when it would descend, it would go boop, 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 boop. So it was just really relaxing, you know, to turn on the TF and, and uh, put it on hard ride. Uh, I, I just thought that was a, a fun way to fly. Did, did, your, um, did your jamming gear interfere with it then in any way? Presumably not. Hmm. You wouldn't be jamming and TFing at the same time, generally. Uh, you needed you needed line of sight with the target radars, and TF was uh, was actually employed to get you below line of sight of the radars. So those two things rarely, if ever, uh, happened at the same time. But you could you could run the ground attack radar and the jammers at the same time, and that was one of the things I remember uh, when I got into the EF one eleven the uh, 
the radar controller was right there next to me. And I'm like, oh, does this mean I get to operate the radar? And uh, being an electrical engineer, I knew I was going to be superior radar operator. But in practice, usually I screwed up the INS more than I fixed it. Now, the radar was actually a very good radar. That big old nose with a big old aperture uh, for a radar dish uh, made for very good uh, azimuth resolution uh, and made beautiful ground maps. Uh, in the EF-111, the scope had been changed from a larger scope under a hood to a smaller uh, six-inch maybe diameter under a Polaroid. Uh, and and we just kind of had to use it in order to find tankers and uh, avoid weather and update the INS. That was pretty much all we needed it for. And, and it wasn't one of these sexy pulse Doppler radars that give you synthetic uh, essay about what the target is and readouts of what your closing velocity and what his heading is and all that. Now it was just a analog smear pin, skin paint Finding finding tankers in the weather was probably the hardest thing we ever did. So I had uh, so the weather the the TF came in really handy this one time to do a flyby at the Air Force Academy, and so I I won't name name the EWO that went with me on that, but we were both Academy grads, and uh, the weather was a little bit low. And the guy on the radio kept asking us, are we going to be able to do this flyby? And I'm like, no problem. So I just kept over top of the Black Forest. I kept turning the uh, set clearance plane down until we were at 500 feet for a 1,500-foot flyby and uh, and just motored straight at the hills behind the stadium at the Air Force Academy. And we could, on the radar, you could very clearly see us approaching the mountain and uh, and uh, the Evo and I both had supreme confidence that we would be able to pull up just in time to uh, to avoid that. So that TFR was really handy for that nice flyby in the weather at the Air Force Academy football game. So Ghostdog688 asks, I understand jamming is a sensitive subject, but speaking broadly, did you have reasonable capability to jam double-digit SAMs, SA10 and up? How effective are those uh, systems? I I treated the double-digit target trackers like a brick wall in the sky. Uh, we we could get into some of the SA feeders that would pass tracks to them, but uh, that that system I wasn't going to mess with, and we were weren't really capable of jamming the target tracker anyway. Yeah, our, our limitation there would be uh, that lack of flexibility in our jamming packages. Our our stuff was, my impression is, really kind of pre-programmed. You didn't have the ability to bring out a tape with a new jamming program and like, oh, today we're going to broadcast, you know, the SA-10 jamming program. It, that would have had to been developed somewhere in a back shop somewhere and shipped out to us. So, Jim talks about uh in episode one they said they didn't really hang around so to speak um covering they just covered the ingress strike and egress what was a standard spark bark mission template um or was there a loiter station 
type mission. I think that the loiter station type mission is the sort of standoff jamming, isn't it? Um, and there's a secondary part of the question. But so, so was there a template? Uh, I mean, I, I guess if you were going in doing the close in bit, you followed whoever the strikers were. But if you were doing standoff jamming, was there a template you'd use? You talked about the hot dog in a box, I think, um, earlier, um, taco type thing. The uh, standard mission template was take off, get gas, update your INS, head to your orbit, or to a, a penetration escort type of a profile. Um, stay just as long as you needed. Get back out. If you, if you were low on gas, get post-strike gas and then go home. For, for standoff jamming, long duration, uh, we would go up usually as a two ship and run the big bow tie pattern uh, until one of us ran out of gas and then we'd clear one off to go get gas. And when he came back, uh, we'd go and get gas uh, ourselves and stayed on station and until our vol time was up. Yeah, so of those, of those two, we did we had kind of this standard closing jam profile and I don't remember the orbit time on those. Were they five or six minutes around at flying at 500 knots or something like that? And yeah, there and were then, a couple of variations. And then uh, for that standoff jam, we would, uh, the one that I remember most was, you know, at the border between Kuwait there. And I think we stretched that way out so that we had like 15 minute legs I don't know if Dave knew this, but I actually took my wristwatch, set the alarm for 10 minutes, stuck it in my helmet, and took a nap. <laughs> Put that, it on that autopilot. Gives me, that gives me a great deal of confidence there. <laughs> I thought you were just taciturn. <laughs> I only did that a couple of times. Well, and by then, the end uh, of the war, they were pretty beat up. And if there was anything to jam, it was it was pretty pathetic. Second part from Jim so, for Jim for Jim then is on a mission. Um, was the pilot strictly on flying duties, or was he supporting the EWO in any other ways apart from operating the jet? Um, for example, was there an autopilot, and could the pilot then assist the EWO, EWO or take on tasks? Uh, Tom. Tom is a great pilot, a perfect pilot for me, because he was savvy in the technical details. He knew why we were doing what we were doing. I can't say that for all of the pilots. In fact, one, one of the pilots, not Tom, that I was with, uh, as we were jamming away, uh, there's really no visible way of knowing. And so he turned to me and said, are we doing it? So... Uh, so he was pretty much focused on getting to the wings level as fast as you could. Very high wing loaded airplane, like we said. So as soon as you went into a turn, belly out, uh, the goal was to get back to wings level as soon as possible. And, and you had to manage the energy. Sometimes you'd go up and down. You wouldn't maintain your altitude uh, so that you could get to belly out to, toward the target or at least wings level as fast as possible. 
Yeah, so we had some ability, I suppose, to interact with the with the self protection systems. I we might have had access to some of those buttons, but I could never remember what any of them did. So I was going to leave that up to the Evo, and uh, I couldn't remember exactly what they did. So not enough to, you know, to second guess how they might have been set up. And I was surprised how much heads down time it took to fly those closing jamming patterns because. You're, you're trying to maintain your altitude plus or minus 200 feet, you know, in a 2G turn in an airplane that can just barely pull 2Gs at, at whatever altitude we were at. So it, there was a lot of heads down time for me as a pilot uh, trying to keep my orbits, you know, on, you know, on time within plus or minus five seconds and on altitude. So I wouldn't hit my own wingman, which is your highest probability of aircraft loss is in a midair is your own wingman. So uh, there turned out to be a lot of heads down time. Now there was supposed to be an improvement to the autopilot with one of those upgrades. Did, did that ever turn out? Did it help with flying it or did it just help with the navigation points? I, I never saw any difference. I'm not sure if it just wasn't effective or I just wasn't paying attention. Okay. Yeah. So Yep. So the answer, the answer there is, as far as I know, that the pilot just did pilot stuff, and uh, and when the pilot got lost, then the EWO helped do pilot stuff. <laughs> it was a full time job, just staying in optimum spacing with the other guy, right? So you were never in the turn at the same time, because that would that would give the enemy a chance to look through your jamming. We've kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'll ask, and if you have a, an answer that you think satisfies the question, then offer it. Um, so Mr. Jolly Roger 103 asks, was the EF-111 more or less capable than the EA-6B? It's faster, that's for sure. Better at uh, going in a straight line. Um, I think the EA-6B jamming platform may have been more capable, but there were also three ECMOs doing the job full-time. Um, it, it was a good solution for what the Air Force intended it to use, and other comparisons, I think, start to lose their meaning, really. Yeah, we. Um, the Air Force, uh, I think the Air Force got a reasonable uh, product for their investment. So they took an A-model airplane that they really didn't need anymore. And for $25 million, <clears throat> they got 10, 10 uh, high-power transmitters all the time. The EA-6B could fly with five jamming pods, but they'd have taken a huge uh, hit on their max airspeed and their endurance and everything else. Whereas we had we had those 10 transmitters built in Two, what was it? One or two transmitters in the blade antenna and then eight in the canoe. Yeah. The, the, like the low band transmitters uh, radiated out of those blade antennas. The, the other thing, and you mentioned it, which is good. The EA6B jammers are on wing pylon stations and, and they got their energy from the pod itself with an impeller turning a dynamo. Uh, so they were, they were generating, uh, electricity at the expense of drag. Uh, but since their jammers were on the wing stations, they had the advantage of being able to jam off the nose 
whereas the EF-111, sort of like the old ships of sail and the cannons were more effective from the side because you didn't want these little jamming ray guns. They look like ray guns on tank turrets in the belly. You didn't want those things all interfering with each other by being lined up front to back. So we wanted them side to side like that, and then they were much more effective. So um, Robbie Jackson asks, have expeditionary growler deployments sufficiently replaced the tactical EA capability lost by the Air Force when the F-111 retired? Uh, I I don't know enough about the capability. I suspect that it's pretty darn good. Um, But in my mind, nothing's going to beat the uh, EF-111. It was the perfect plane for me. The uh, so I first answered that on the on the online thing and said no, and then I went and looked at the quantities and saw that it looks like they have a hundred or however however it's set up. They have their training squadron, and then they have ten squadrons for their ten carrier wings, and they have five or six more squadrons. And so if each one of those squadrons is five airplanes, that that's potentially twenty five ground based. Uh, aircraft because the the navy uh, the navy when they deploy on ship they really don't have the ability to then redeploy to land all of their maintenance equipment is on the ship and so having a capability to turn sorties from a land based unit uh, requires extra equipment so so the EF one eleven squadron would have been designed to deploy that way if the navy has five or six of those five unit squadrons if they have twenty five deployable airplane that that's that's pretty capable that's essentially what we were able to field for desert storm because we had to hold some back for the training unit so if they have 25 deployable uh that's a a lot of capability uh they they wouldn't quite have the same legs because when you put four or three of those jamming pods on the wings you know now you have to have a couple of fuel tanks but, uh, but that 25 uh, ground-based units or land-based should be quite a bit of capability. Tickler asks, how did you optimize the geometry when you had several threats? Was it all planned on map with a hard timeline? Um, and how did you reconfigure for pop-up threats? I think we did talk a little bit about that, but I don't know if you have a summary sort of type answer. Yeah, I, I would say... You plan for what you knew was in the EOB on paper, and sometimes you didn't have the option of dedicating a jammer at the azimuth that the radiating energy was from. That jammer had a beam width that was, it's not like a laser beam, it was more like a floodlight. Uh, And so you try to cover multiple um, ground emitters, maybe with one sort of halfway in between aiming solution. The pop-up traffic is the reason why you need an EWO. This isn't something you can just flip a switch and let the computer handle it. The the EWO needed to do uh, the sensor fusion essentially between the ear cups. Uh, back before sensor fusion was a thing, there was still sensor fusion. It was just done in gray matter. And that's what the EWO was for, for those pop-up threats 
and uh, reallocating jammers and doing on the fly uh, ALQ 99E reconfigurations. Yeah, we were, we were pretty limited because we did not have any kind of a data link. We didn't have any other situational awareness uh, besides what we could glean from our single radio. So uh, I think during some of the longer missions, we might have changed frequencies and, and listened to the A-10s checking in so that we knew that there was you know somebody checking in and going up to the target area, but uh, kind of limited. AWACS you know, is not going to try to build our situational awareness for us because they have plenty of work to do. And, and we tried talking to the rivet joint a little bit, but I, you know, it was almost like we didn't speak the same language, uh, you know, even though they had, they had the crows in the back of the rivet joint, uh, it, you know, we really didn't have a communications format to, to, to communicate anything uh, real time. So, uh, yeah, we were, we were kind of limited as far as responding to, to pop-ups, you know, other, other than exactly what uh, Super said there, you know, observing the actual electromagnetic environment and, and optimizing our jamming. Okay. So, um, Scotty asks, gosh, he's got six questions. This list goes on and on. Um, Scotty asks, how much... Um, of a threat was home on jam mode. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of air-to-air -air missiles, M7, M20, that has that capability. Um, but did the Red Air guys have a home and jam capability? And so I guess what he's asking is, could they have sent an SA-2 up to get you? Well, home on jam, home on jam's an issue, right? We're, we're like the the spotlight in a infantry firefight at night. Think of it that way. If your tactic is I'm going to blind the enemy soldiers in their foxhole by shining a big light in their eyes. Well, if you're that infantry on the other side, where are you going to shoot? You're going to shoot out the, the big spotlight first and then pick off the soldiers. Once your, your vision comes back. Uh, so home on jam was a concern. We kinematically defeated that with just planning. We knew, uh, based on intelligence, just how far the, uh, the missiles could shoot. AIs were always the big question mark uh, because we, we couldn't plan for them geographically. And so we were very much dependent on our caps to protect us. And that was, that was always, at least in my mind, my biggest concern. If I had AIs, that got my attention right away for that very reason. So we would, we would try to stay outside of any, any known threat envelope. And, uh, and I don't think an AI would have to use a home on jam missile to hit us because we had a plenty big radar signature. So, uh, yeah, you know, a scary thing. Now, if someone could put a home on jam on an ICBM, you know, that might have been a problem. Or, you know, what were what were the longest range missiles out there? You know, SA-10s and and uh, SA-4s or something like that. But but they wouldn't really need to do a home on jam because we we couldn't get into their target attack. I mean, their engagement radar, that wasn't our big jamming thing. So we, we really had to honor their missile range 
and typically plan to be outside of that. His second question is weather conditions, how do they affect jamming um, and the effectiveness of jamming? And I think actually you mentioned super a little bit about a Navy guy you work with who taught you a little bit about that. Yeah, um, the composition of the atmosphere actually um, has an effect on uh, the jamming and it's very much frequency dependent. The nice thing about radar and RF uh, frequencies, those longer wavelengths, they can see through the clouds. That's what makes radar so nice. So our jamming was on the same frequencies as the radars. And so very little um, consequence to, um, to weather, uh, some, some attenuation, but where most of the attenuation happens is at much higher frequencies. And here comes the harm question that uh, Pyro was referencing earlier. So the question is, uh, during jamming, in theory, can a harm be guided towards you? So this comes from, and there's a couple of bits in here that I think you know Pyro responded to a little bit, and then there's some continuing conversation generally in the Discord channel about it. But there was a B-52 that was apparently hit by a harm. Uh, the harm guided on the tail radar, the uh, the gun radar in the back of the B-52. And so then the, the the sort of question became, could it hit an, aer an aeroplane that's sort of moving more more sort of fast? Uh, and um, then the question became, well, could it hit an E3? <laughs> so... So, so what? And 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 we we and I, I know you'll say this, but you obviously don't shoot harms. You you're not harm shooters. But based on on the theory or the theoreticals, what, what do you think? If if I got hit by a harm and I survived, that Evo better leave the country because I'm coming after him. Uh, we we coordinated very closely with those guys to make sure that we didn't interfere with their operation and and they were very aware of the frequencies that we were going to be jamming on and and we got along very well uh we're all sort of electromagnetic warriors together uh, not really an issue yeah i uh never even thought about getting hit with a harm i was surprised to find out that the weasels came up to to the Boise Air National Guard, and the one fellow asked later on, "Did uh, did you ever fly with those guys, Dave, or did you know they were up there?" Yeah, I, I knew they were up there. Um, that was the sort of last hurrah for the F4G. They converted to the A10 after that. It wasn't very long that uh, the F4Gs were there at Boise, but. Um, we, we really didn't exercise all that much together. They were a guard unit and flew mostly on the weekends, whereas we were we were active duty and flew on the weekdays. So not a whole lot of overlap, except for maybe at an exercise like red flag or green flag. Okay, I'm, I'm reading through Scotty's other questions. I think there's a couple that we've kind of already answered in terms of you know the navy versus the air force and and which platform was the right platform to replace the ef um he does ask though was there ever a situation where you ended up jamming both friendly and um adversary um, assets not on purpose and if i did nobody ever told me uh to cease buzzer 
we may have raised a few garage doors or set off a few doctor's beepers. Uh, but as far as uh, interfering with our own operation, uh, we were careful not to do that. Okay. All right. So Robbie Jackson asks another question, which is, um, it's another one about the A6B. So he's saying expeditionary growlers are pretty interesting because they do land-based deployments and have a decent amount of Air Force crew flying them. So it's kind of more of an observation rather than a question. Um, all right, so Scotty's got more questions, which is, have you ever done one of those fuel dump and burner for the fireball thingies? <laughs> Not that I'll admit to. That was strictly prohibited in the U.S. Air Force. In the Australian Air Force, they did it as an air show stunt. Uh, so so there, it routinely happened, but uh, I'll take the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination <laughs> protection. Uh, and besides, that's not my crew position, so I'm innocent. What were the so dump I, switches on the center so I console? Took the, I took the advantage uh, while we were over there, Desert Storm. I, you know, not a lot of telephones on the ground. And so a couple of times I, I came to the conclusion that a, a dump and burn was the appropriate thing. I had a, a wingman that just couldn't seem to find me at night. And, and so I told the Evo, like, so he can't see me. We'll solve that problem. And so I put it into afterburner and flipped the dump switch. And there was a little bit of haze in the sky. And we were just surrounded by orange. And uh, and the, then you hear on the radio, tally-ho. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I only did it once, maybe twice. And... Uh, yeah, the, generally the EWO was not impressed with my logic train that led me to that uh, solution. So Scotty's also, he's asked about uh, flight profile, but you've answered that. Um, what about the effective range? So what is what was the the effective range you could cover with the smart bar? Uh The effective range, that is not an easy question to answer nor is it one that I would be able to answer, I think, for security purposes. The effective range very much depended on the vulnerability of the target radar receiver, so the ground system. Uh, remember, we talked about how the ground system would have to send out big energy, maybe hundreds of kilowatts, and then be very sensitively listening for echoes that might be milliwatts. And so those, the sensor's eyes were very wide open and it didn't take much for me going one way to jam the heck out of them. Uh, so we obviously had to have line of sight or, or we could go over the horizon if the atmospheric conditions were right for that frequency. Um, but generally it was a... A line of sight question and not a power question because we had a power advantage. Yeah, so so line of sight terms I uh, don't remember, but it seems to me at 15,000, 20,000 feet, your line of sight was probably limited to 80 to 100 miles or something like that. So, so I think we uh, 
line of sight, the geometry, trying to get the geometry with your package, what, you know, was the more limiting thing than the power, you know, so more of a geometry limitation than a power limitation. So another question which has already kind of been answered, but I'll ask it just um, because it's explicit. So you already mentioned that there were three ECMOs in the EA6. There's one EWO in the EF111. And Scotty's question was, what was the workload like then, given the similarities in the jamming systems? And um, again, I think I think these questions were probably put in before we did before we broadcast part two. So some of your description, super around um, you know, the automation, the way that the system worked may not have been available to Scotty when he asked this. But anyway, what's your answer? The, the workload, well, the short answer is uh, it takes three ECMOs to make one EWO. That's, I mean, obvious to everybody who just as a casual observer. Uh, but the real, the real answer to the question is uh, many of the housekeeping chores and running the receivers and pointing the jammers and things like that were, were given up to this uh, 1970s powered uh, computer system, and, and that was adequate. Uh, there was a mode where if the computer failed, the workload went through the roof because now I am having to scan manually the receiver and listen for the beeps and squeaks that EWOs get kitted about knowing uh, to do the identification of what the threat is. So I would know just based on the sound and, and how long it took for it to scan around one scan, that's how I would have to identify it without a computer. And then I'd have to manually steer each one of the 10 jammers with a knob on the right-hand console to get it to point in the direction that I needed it to go. So the computer did... Uh, most of the the work and the EWO was there to do the tactical decisions and strategy of the war fight. I, I think, uh, you know, by virtue of having three ECMO stations, you have, you have three times as much cockpit real estate to do things. So I felt like the EA-6B had a lot more, uh, time duration that 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 weapon could stay weapon system could could stay uh, uh relevant uh, i i think i remember it correctly i mentioned it before that there were marine and navy ecmos electronic warfare people that were writing programs f for uh defeating ieds mm. you know later on in 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 the conflicts after desert storm and and these guys could could write new programs and one way or another, they could load it into their comms jammer and, and be jamming IEDs from an EA-6B. And so that by virtue of having more real estate and, and more manpower, that, that gives you a lot more flexibility to, uh, to sustain the system all the way until what, 2019 or something like that was the last uh, EA-6B flight. I think the yeah, A6B has got a harm shoot capability as well, doesn't it? So it's but you know, if your objective is to turn, yeah, it had uh, because the A6 itself was a fantastic weapon system. It uh, they continued to modernize the uh, the data bus, you know. So what fifteen fifty three or whatever the modern data bus is, you know, they they had that whole electronic backbone 
that they could add things and talk to their weapons. They could talk to their pylons, whereas we really had no ability to talk to ours other than to jettison a fuel tank had we ever carried one. Hmm. Well, it might be 1776, but... Um, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, um, okay, so how many police radars did you jam? Be honest. All of them. <laughs> All the time. Okay, so Gasman's asking, um, when you were out at Mountain Home, did the Idaho Air National Guard have the F4Gs at that time? Um, and did you ever train or integrate together? Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that. The F4G move up to Boise happened after Desert Storm, as I recall. Um, there were a few EF-111 EWOs that actually made that jump into the Air Guard and went to Boise with the F4G, but it didn't stay there very long. The F4, uh, very much like the F-111, became unsupportable uh, during the peace dividend years of the mid-90s. And that's when they decided that they were going to retire that platform and and put the harm targeting system on the F-16 instead. There's a question from uh, Magami. He says it is it is definitely a bit off topic. And um, maybe if we broadened it to, he's talking about a check um, electronic support measures, TDOA system. I think it's sort of some kind of passive detection system, mm -hmm. NATO codename softball and trash yeah. can. He's asking, is it all snake oil or is there some validity to the I, I guess i mean if you could talk generally if you don't necessarily know about that system or can't talk about that system but you know passive sensors uh, are they uh, a valid and you know, sort of important component of a, a modern you know ew system it it's a it's a very capable system uh and one of the things that makes them capable is they're passive so uh so the counter to that is problematic and therefore we pay attention to those kind of systems. Uh, they, they're not snake oil. Can, can you, again, the Wikipedia answer, I mean, we could just go to Wikipedia, but if, if it's possible, is there a sort of uh, a short, um, you know, Luddite version of the answer as to what a passive system is? What is that? Passive systems work like your ears work. Your ears don't send out any sonic waves. They, they just listen for sonic waves that are in the air from other emitters, right? And they have some directionality depending on which way you turn your head. That's The passive systems are like that. So they will find the telltale emissions from what they want to track and uh, and use their direction finding capability to pinpoint. And then they'll triangulate amongst themselves to get those lines of position to cross to develop uh, target tracks. That's the Wikipedia version of trash can or softball or any of the other systems that are similar to that. Yeah, so they... They were very capable. I don't remember when they first came out as a bomb dropper. That was quite concerning. 
we actually had a target at Upper Hayford that had SA-10s defending it. And we were kind of curious as to how we got fragged against that target because we weren't sure how many of us were going to come, come back from that uh, option. And, uh, and, then, and then the passive listeners, if they're properly integrated into the IADs, you know, we'd be moving along on our train following radar and they would detect us, you know, tens, 50 miles away. Uh, and, and then all those other systems could just sit and stand by. And, uh, you know, those were rapid response systems. You know, we could easily be inside their engagement envelope and they turn on and fire on a very exact position. So we, we really had to honor those. I think the only snake oil aspect of a passive listening system is when you, when you start to try to listen for the electromagnetic absence of a stealth aircraft. There was this idea that got experimented with a little bit, just like you could see an airplane against this night starry sky, maybe you could see a stealth airplane the same way, that somehow you'd be able to see the shadow of this uh, stealth airplane. That was, that's the only one that uh, shows up in some sci-fi um, type novels that I think might be a little bit of a stretch for the physics properties. But as far as an, an active listening system, that really uh, generates a lot of uh, revenue for low probability of intercept radios and radars. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I don't know if it was Ben Rich's autobiography, the Skunk Works autobiography, or some other book that was contemporary to that, but they talked about the stealth boat that the, uh, the Skunk Works put together. And apparently one of the flaws with it was that if you painted that thing in the sea with your radar, you'd get a return from the sea, but you'd get a blank spot where the boat was. So you could kind of work out inversely where it was it wasn't actually sending an echo there was an absence of an echo so that's it's interesting then so that sort of i think that whole long wave um sort of argument about you know you being able to see the shadow then you're you're saying that's not true then there's a there's that that's a a, mis, a sort of a, a fallacy um in my in my unclassified experience yeah but that they looked at that and that was just at least 10 years ago, that was a mathematical problem that just was not going to be able to be solved with those computers. Now, maybe with uh, quantum computers, may maybe you can run all those millions and millions of test cases and find that shadow. But at least 10 years ago, that was that was something that a passive system was not able to do, which, you know. Okay. Uh, so Tickler asked, is there still a role for anti-radiation weapons, at least for initial targeting? Um, so there were during Desert Storms, there were stories about um, the IADs turning off radars because they'd heard Magnum. I think we talked about that uh, with the tape running on the first interview, calling that was sometimes enough to make them switch off. Um, there's obviously a psychological effect, he says, to knowing that a weapon can uh, track and, uh, and hit you. Um, so that was the question then, you know, is there still a role for an anti-radiation weapon? And, um, you know, what was the effect then of the Iraqis turning their, their tracking radars off when they heard that call on the airwaves? Uh, that's a defeat. Whether it's blown up or turned off, you're still getting to your target without being shot down. And that's all I really cared about. Uh, a, a lot of the Magnum calls, I, I hear that a lot from the bomb dropper community, 
where they got nervous about being spiked by a Sam and would key the mic and say Magnum. And then the spike would go away. And uh, I'm not sure that all those radar operators were a able to understand English or B on that frequency. Chances are they, they didn't all, uh, there isn't a correlation between that and the radar going down necessarily, but it makes for a great story. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think as Dave said, the, uh, the, you know, even though we were so highly effective against that IADS, those were very capable operators and they, they did do that. They knew how to use their ECCM. They knew how to try to run silent and, uh, and depend upon their, their command and control network. Um, you know, that, that capability was there. We didn't roll over them because they were an easy target. We really just had a overwhelming capability. It's a very good link, actually, to the next question, which is, and there are only a few more, but the, the next question, which is from Sedlow again, which is about whether or not you coordinated with other system denial activities, i.e. Uh, cyber, ground, kinetic, or other. Um, I remember reading, almost immediately after the war, that uh, I don't know if it was a British team, um, doesn't really matter, had, had got to Baghdad, and managed to insert some malicious uh, software or something into some of their command and control systems or some kind of you know central capability that they had. And I think it's one of the earliest documented cases of sort of cyber warfare. Did you did you have um, a connection then to other um, participants in the electromagnetic um, war? Well, I've told you my story about the first night of the war and the SA-2 that everybody in Intel seemed to know was there, but they wouldn't share it with me. Uh, If there were SAS snake eaters injecting malicious code, uh, they're way not going to tell me that. (laughs) So uh, I, I don't... I don't, I would not be surprised if that were absolutely true. Uh, I talked a little bit about that French carry system, their command and control system, and how they essentially gave us the Death Star plans to that, to figure out where its vulnerabilities were. Uh, It would not surprise me at all to find out that, that they infiltrated somebody to take care of uh, one of those vulnerabilities in the cyber realm. I, I think that would have been a brilliant thing to do if they had uh, something to do that with. Uh, but they're sure not going to tell the snacko of Desert Storm that that's going on. That That's just not how the military works. They're not even going to tell me that an SA-2 is under my, my taco orbit on the first night of the war because they were afraid that I'd be shot down, and captured, and tortured for that information. Um, Jim asks, and again, we've kind of covered this, but uh, with the retirement of the EF, how much of a uh, capability gap was there? I mean, it's a valid question because we did talk about the EA eighteen coming in, but there was a gap. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what the the, the, the span of that gap was. But well, we we had the EA six B to backstop us, but remember the decision space at the time. The Soviet Union just folded its tent 
And that was the big threat. Uh, not until 9-11 did another threat emerge and beyond sort of jamming cell phone triggers for IEDs, uh, that wasn't an electromagnetic warfare fight for the most part. But the, but the peer competition that's setting up now, if the Soviet or if the Russians decided to roll into Ukraine today, which if you read the newspapers, sounds like it's a possibility, or if the Chinese decide to roll into Taiwan, uh, that that's going to be an electromagnetic fight to the nth degree. Final question then, um, because Chris asked about the polarization, but you, you, we've already discussed that. You've handled that. So final question from Jim was, it's a good question actually, not to suggest that the others weren't, but this is kind of a cool question. So, you know, hypothetically or in a sort of fantasy world, then if you two were in charge, and the EF-111 was being retired, what would you have replaced it with? And he gives some suggestions, EB-1B or even EF-117. I mean, that, not that you're limited to choosing those two fictitious uh, platforms, but, well, you know, if, if there were no limitations and you could have done what you wanted, what would you have done? Well, I know what I wouldn't have chosen. I wouldn't have chosen the EF-117 uh, because that's, that's a oxymoron. Right, a stealth jammer uh, that doesn't work. Right, stealth is to keep from being detected, and jamming is the brightest thing in the electromagnetic spectrum. Ah, but but what if you're stealthy getting to your orbit, and your orbit's really close to something, so you can, I don't know, burn through whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, well, as soon as you turn off, you're invisible again, or difficult to see. There, there are better ways to do that. And there's all kinds of very clever little uh, decoys uh, that fly around uh, and look like airplanes and can jam like airplanes and get very close in uh, for a power advantage. Uh, that, that would be how I would solve that problem these days especially given the lethality of some of these double digits that are out in the world today. Uh, if, and we did that in Pubas party too, right? We, we fired quail drones to, to act as missile sucker uppers. And apparently that worked like, like very well. Mm -hmm. So That's I, right. I wouldn't do a, uh, definitely wouldn't do an EF-117, an EB-1 uh, would be okay. Having flown the B-1, uh, I would prefer to use that capability for, for bomb dropping. That thing, once it was conventionally loaded out, had this almost vending machine-like uh, quality where you know, if you want a 500 pounder, yeah, we got one of those. If you want a 2000 pounder, yeah, we got one of those. If you want something that strikes, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away, we, we got that too, uh, all on the same platform. So it's like, a, it's like the bomb vending machine in the sky. I, I wouldn't waste a capability like that trying to uh, upgrade it to, uh, to a tactical jamming platform. Besides, it, it turns even worse than the EF-111. 
think I would come at that, you know, from two directions, the, the sensible answer and my answer. The sensible answer would be to, to get something that's always available and can self-deploy. And so that's how you end up with sort of the business jet answer or, uh, or the replacement for the Poseidon, you know, a 767 that has lots of power, lots of room. So I, I, would, I would probably take a Gulf Stream. Uh, but my answer would be, uh, as long as it had a bathroom, I'd be pretty happy with it. And because uh, I really hated using the piddle pack in the EF-111. And I'm sure all my EWOs, you know, hated it just as much. Me peeing about three different piddle packs. And so if I was really going to pick an airplane, if the B-58 Hustler had a bathroom, I think I'd go for that. Four <laughs> engines, Delta Wing. Trent Holmes' dad flew the B-58, and he said it almost had a one-to-one thrust ratio. Really? And so I, I think that would satisfy all of my requirements. <laughs> is, is there, we're, we're coming to a, a close, but is there anything that we should have talked about in the seven or so hours that we've um, been talking to one another that we haven't covered? Anything about the EF story that needs, needs uh, to be surfaced that, that we didn't talk about? Now, the, the only story that I have that, that may not be common knowledge is, uh, is just a funny story, really, about the design. Uh, not many people realize that the, the F-111A and therefore the EF-111 had an ashtray. So you don't really think of, of that, right? I actually had one of my IPs when I was in the F-111A for the RTU did that. He was smoking a cigar with his mask hanging down. He's this old codger of a guy. He must have been 40, you know, ancient. <laughs> and uh smoking a cigar in this F-111. I was I was I thought I was in Dr. Strangelove for a little while. Uh so that was one of the things. The other thing is I had this secret desire to accidentally have to uh uh eject the capsule over water because the uh, when when you land in the water in the EF-111 ejection capsule, it actually floats. And the stick on the left hand side doubled as the bilge pump to to keep the water out of the the bottom of the the cockpit. And you would put this little uh, pin in there and and then the left seater would have to pump this thing to, to keep it floating. And I always, you know, having been never been the aircraft commander, uh, I always told my guys, if, if we have to bail out over water, you got to be the aircraft commander, but I get to be the captain of the ship. <laughs> so you become the first mate. And I would practice saying things in private, like, put your back into it, man, you know, as they would... Uh, have to pump the builds for me so i i was really hoping that that would happen sometime but it never did for me <laughs> i can't uh <clears throat> yeah so i mentioned the uh the glycol the fuel coolers um so a couple of things whenever you did the pre-flight on the 111 you'd uh, where we'd probably start on the pilot side and and walk around the airplane and with every important piece of equipment, you could look at it and like, oh, good, 
that's not going to cause the end of the flight today. The, the, so I had an airplane that had a malfunctioning slack that almost crashed us. Uh, you had these flat veins. It was like the only fighter airplane with a fowler flap, like a 747. And so you look at the, at the, uh, at the flaps like, well, those look in good condition. Hopefully that won't crash the airplane today. <laughs> and then you'd look at the angle of attack probe and like, oh, good, we have two. We probably won't crash because of an angle of attack malfunction today. And then you'd go around to the tail of the airplane that the elevator on that airplane was bigger than a T-38 wing, you know, and, and uh, as the, as the wings swept back, the center of pressure would move so far back that you're actually all this negative lift on the tail just to keep the nose up. So you had to push because we had several crashes from the elevator on the airplane. You'd have to push up on the elevator and make sure that it drooped down correctly. Like, oh, good, that's not going to crash this airplane today. You'd go into the wheel well, and there's a, a fuel line about this big around, right next to a bleed air line about this big around. And you'd kind of look at that and like, well, I hope we don't have any bleed air light all that fuel on fire today in this wheel well. And uh, so there really were some important things to inspect on that airplane as you walked around because almost every object on that airplane had caused somebody a major heartburn or, or crash or a death. Uh, so, uh, so I really took that pre-flight serious. Um, that's one thing I remember. Well, um, Paro, super. This has been a fantastic experience. I'm very grateful to you both for your generosity of time and your patience and your willingness to take the AMA and for all of the um, inane questions that I've asked over the last six or seven hours. Um, really has been great to tell the story. I feel like um, there's just not enough about the F-111 out there. There's not enough about the work that you guys did out there and the tremendous accomplishments that you came back from the desert uh, having achieved. So I'm glad to have in some small way uh, address that and, and I would say just to repeat again if anybody's uh, in that the uh, the Growler squadron from the Air Force's point of view at the moment and we can get some uh, get you in touch with Super and maybe try and figure out where this uh, memorabilia is we can get re- reunite that with the squadron get in touch on the podcast and uh, I'll make that happen but again thank you both gentlemen very much uh, it's been uh, a real pleasure and a, and a wonderful experience thank you thank you Steve a great uh, pleasure to be with you Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.